Good morning. You may be wondering what I'm doing here, and Bryce is sitting back there. Well, when we were hiring Bryce 16 months ago, we made big promises to Bryce, such as we told him, you know, you're moving from four sermons a year to 52 sermons a year, and how about we take, you know, 12, one a month, and we cover for you, Bryce, and that sounded like a great deal, and in the 16 months since, this is the second time we've done that, so Bryce, the lesson is get those promises in writing, but uh, I did see you all were able to take a vacation this week. That was great, although going to Texas in August is not exactly a vacation, but congratulations anyway on getting away. So we're going to be looking today at Jonah and finishing kind of this series on uh, VBS for adults. And before we do that, I want you to think about movies and in books and endings in particular. What makes a good ending and what makes a terrible ending? You know, we each sort of have our own, and I put some of my favorites up here for you to look at. And when I think about good endings, I can think of lots of good endings. Um, Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Great book. Tremendous ending. Comes to you out of nowhere. You love it. Some of my other favorite movies, Usual Suspects, Sixth Sense, Star Wars, you know, that final um, ending um, in, in Star Wars. All of those are good endings. It gets a little harder when I think about bad endings. It's not always sad endings. You know, when you think about sad endings, Old Yeller, you remember reading that? What a terrible ending. But uh, The Road, Seven, Titanic. Um, they're sad movies that are still redemptive. Things like Shawshank Redemption, Castaway. I don't know if you remember the ending of Castaway. It's a great It's back. What happens? His wife had married somebody else. Kind of the lesson of time goes on. It was sad, but it was still a redemptive ending in that. Now, here's two weird endings. Some of you may remember the movie Clue. Um, if you don't remember it, it came out um, somewhere, I think, in the 90s. And what was odd about that? Does anybody know? It had three different endings. So depending on where, which theater you went to, you could see one ending or another ending or another ending, and I think the theory was they try to get you to go back and see all of the endings. If you watch it now online, they just stack them all together. And then I throw in Cannonball Run. There was a lot of famous people in that movie. Um, they just kind of took everybody who was famous at the time, James Bond and Burt Reynolds and um, Dean Martin and um, all, all sorts of people, threw them all in, made a movie, but at the end, it was kind of an odd ending because they sort of invented the idea of the gag reel, where they would run during the credits, and they would show everybody kind of cracking up and breaking character. And, uh, the, the idea was to kind of show everybody in a less serious spot at the end of that one. Now, what about bad endings? What is when you think of a really bad ending? The two that I came up with, Mel Gibson's Signs. I don't know if anybody saw this movie. It was actually a pretty good movie, very tense, aliens invading, coming to this farmhouse. Um, it gets more and more tense through the end of the movie. Near towards the end of the movie, and then what happens? It turns out these aliens who'd come to Earth were, um, could be destroyed by water. So, I mean, you turn on a garden hose or it rains, and they all get destroyed. I mean, you know, nothing uh, makes sense of uh, coming to a planet where it's 60% water and then being destroyed by water. And then what I consider the all-time worst ending was Superman. I was nine years old, and I was ready for this movie. It still torments me today. But I went to that movie uh, when it first came out. It was, I was all excited. I was a DC Comics guy. I went to see Superman. 
And anybody remember the ending of that movie? Well, Superman drops Lois Lane, kills her. That's not a good ending. And so then to kind of make up for it, what does he do? He flies around the earth backwards, and maybe the earth turns and goes back in time. I mean, I was nine years old, and I wasn't buying that ending. I mean, that's just an awful ending. I mean, it would probably cause the earth to pull off its axis, and we would all be destroyed. It wouldn't go back in time. But anyway, it was, a, it was an awful ending, which brings us to Jonah, our text today. So I'm not going to read all this to you, but you could certainly see it. You all know this story, and that's why we're talking about it for VBS stories for adults. You, you recognize this story. God tells Jonah, go east, save the Ninevites. Jonah instead, what? He goes west. Walks down, goes to Joppa nearby a port. It's interesting in verse 3, he buys a ticket to go the opposite direction. God says, go east. Jonah pays for a fare to go the opposite direction. He goes west. And then the Lord, it says, sent a great wind on the storm. So the boat's rocking. Jonah's asleep. They wake him up. They say, how did you bring all this about? He goes up and he answers. And, you know, the sailors, then they actually cast lots. And the lot falls on Jonah. And he confesses what he's done. He's going the wrong direction from God's decree. And even at that point, which I think we would have all tossed him over, they still take an effort to row the boat safely away. It says they gave all of their effort, and when that doesn't work, they finally uh, listen to Jonah and throw him off the boat. They threw him away as the sea was getting rougher. They offer a prayer, ask for forgiveness, and then after this, it says, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights, and inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. This is all in chapter one, and then chapter two has this beautiful prayer of Jonah. And I'll read part of this. It says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, to the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me, and I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I'll look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. To the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited John, Jonah onto the dry land. That's a real word, vomited. Uh, so the fish vomits Jonah up. What do we get there? Well, we get redemption. The word came a second time to him. He goes to Nineveh. He proclaims. We're, we find out Nineveh is a large city. It's three days across, 120,000 people the largest city in the world at that time. It says a day in to the city, which is interesting to me, he began with this religious message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the lesson. 40 days and you're all dying. And it works. They believe. All the way down from the king, the greatest to the smallest, they believe, they repent, they all of this happens. God saw what, they, saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways. He relented, 
and he did not bring the destruction that he had threatened. Scene over, movie over, cue the Ewoks, it's all great, right? Everything is good at that point. And there's so many ways to read Jonah. You know, there's the child version of if you do wrong and, and bad things happen, and if you listen to God, good things happen. There's the intellectual version, you know, that maybe you hit around college or when you're questioning as an adult, which is, what is this story all about? You know, and you start asking all the hard questions. Was this a fish? Was this a whale? How did he live three days? You know, this, Jonah was um, an extensive part of the Scopes Monkey Trial. In particular, whether or not somebody could live three days was part of the cross-examination of Clarence Darrow, and it was a, a large part of that. We ask the hard questions, is this a story? Is this real? Was Jonah a real person? We know in 2 Kings we hear of a Jonah, uh, but there's one little verse in 2 Kings about him. Uh, we read this story, and, and it all starts to get stranger and stranger. And what about the Ninevites? Why save the Ninevites, right? You've got this group that were known to be awful people, and all Testament is the story of God's people, the Israelites, and how he saves them again and again. And why would he send an Israelite to save their most hated rivals, the, this large city? I mean, Nineveh had everything. It was the, one of the capitals of the world at that time. It was the largest city in the world. Why save an entire city? And what is it? I mean, is this like Job? Is this some foreigner that found favor with God and God decided to save him? Which brings us to Jonah chapter 4. Well, that's strange. You know, we've, you have the entire story so far, right? You have a perfect three-part sermon about a call to obedience and disobedience and the consequences of it. You have that beautiful poem where Jonah, um, in the depths of the, of the fish, cries out for his God. And then you have resolution where everything happens. Jonah 4 is our text today. Let's read it. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he said, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade. For his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, the Lord provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight, 
And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Hmm. Interesting. So a little bit of a confession. Jonah 4. It's been on my heart for a while now. Read it, reread it. Uh, tried to read commentaries. I've looked at lots of intricacies in it, and I, I'm not sure I'm still understanding it. You know, the ending happens in Jonah 3, but this is a flashback to an earlier part where he's waiting for the destruction, and there aren't many nonlinear stories in the Bible. So it becomes like the books and the movies that I was asking you about earlier, good endings or bad endings. What kind of ending is this? What is Jonah 4 exactly? Is Jonah 3 the ending, and maybe this is after the credits? Is this to try to give you some more color about who Jonah was? because it changes the story completely. Is this some sort of hidden Easter egg like they put in some movies? Try to give you, uh, lead you to the next one, something else to think about? Is this an unresolved, frustrating ending that, that um, some books that we don't like, they don't give us any resolution at all? You know, because after all, the question God asks is never answered. There's no Jonah chapter 5. It ends right there. No resolution, just a lingering question for us and no response. And now it's time to think a little about Jonah. Because we have this image, we certainly have the the first story we understand of Jonah, which is he was given to us and he did wrong and he repented and then he did right. But Jonah 4 undercuts everything about him. You know, he um, disobeys God in chapter 1 In chapter 2, he finds religion, but he finds religion where we all can find religion, right? At the depths where the seaweed is wrapped around our head, we can all find God in that place. When you're calling Kent, you can find religion in that place. When you're out of a job, you can find religion. When a relationship dies, you can find religion. And Jonah found religion, but he found religion in the belly of a whale after three days of there, between life and between death. That's where Jonah finds himself, and then after he's called, he goes in what? He goes and he preaches, and he's successful, but he didn't really believe the message that he was preaching. It wasn't much of a message, right? Forty days and repent? I mean, that doesn't seem like he's got much of his heart into it. And then when God questions him about it, what does he say? He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing. I know you're gracious and slow to anger. Now, Lord, you know, when he's questioned about it, what does he do? He lies about it, right? Because if, if, if he was honest and if he was truthful about that, why was he waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed? Why was he there sitting and waiting for the fireworks to start. Instead, he's brooding about it because he never believed the message that he was preaching. So we've got this ending that's incomplete. We've got a protagonist in Jonah that makes no sense. We've got questions unanswered. We have unresolved theological questions. What are we to make about Jonah 4? And this is where we come to my my little scene here. And when I picture Jonah 4... This is what I picture. Picture a lawn chair. Now, if I was Bryce and learned, I would tell you the Hebrew word for lawn chair from Jonah chapter 4, 
but I can't, I can't do that. So instead, I'm telling you the picture that I have. And I pictured Jonah sitting out in this lawn chair and waiting for the fireworks to start. And so to make this lesson work, I have to be a little different. I can't stand up here and pound about Jonah. I've got to sort of find myself in my, my own way down to this spot. And I've got to ask myself, do I, do you, do we ever hear from God something that he tells us and repeatedly tells us and tells us again and we don't do it? Do we? I see some nods heading. Not, not me, but you. Yes, yeah, I, I see some heads out there. I, 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 hypothetically speaking, you know, I, I um, can feel, and this is um, the second time I think I've been up here in 28 years, and I, I would like at this time to thank the people that asked for me to return, both of you, um, and that both includes my mother, but it's all right. There was a number of people, as J.J. liked to said, that requested that I come back here and preach, but I can't help thinking when I was up here four years ago, and it was almost to the day four years ago, and I had some cute stories. I had a nice picture of Gary and his football outfit, and I wrapped it around John chapter 21. And John chapter 21, I'm sure you all remember that lesson, but just, just in case some of you weren't there, I'll, I'll give you a little a hint. But John 21 is the story of Jesus and his disciples. It's after the resurrection. He's talking to them about fishing. And what does Jesus say to them? You know, they've spent all night. These are professional fishermen. And Jesus says what? Try the other side. They catch 153 fish. And the lesson that day around that story and around that lesson was um, what I threw in there was um, my view of that story, which was, Life had gotten too comfortable. The boat needed to be rocked. The boat was too steady. Um, and that you don't catch fish unless you're willing to rock that boat. Well, four years later, there's been a lot of rocking of the boat. And I recognize that. You know, I recognize that six months later is when we first heard of this virus uh, coming out of China and how much that caused people to rethink I also know that the political climate's changed a lot in four years. And in addition, I know the church here has changed a lot. It was only two weeks later when somebody dared stand up and tell about a, a story about Jesus. And, and you know, she mentioned uh, a few other verses, and, and I was sort of outraged at the time. I was like Jonah in that moment. And now I want to sit comfortably in that chair and shake my hand and tell God, see, I told you that wouldn't work. And then today I'm not going to stand here and ask for more rocking of the boat. I want calm waters. I want to pray like Jesus did for calm. You know, we all have this desire to know what's ahead, what the future looks like. I can't tell you the future of church in general in the world or in the U.S. or here, I can tell you a little bit about Jonah and Nineveh, and I find that history fascinating because we don't get anything. We don't get a chapter 5. This is all you have after that question. But what happened to the church, or what happened to the city of Nineveh after that point? What happened to Jonah? You know, Jonah isn't mentioned again. He's mentioned one verse in 2 Kings. He's mentioned in Jonah. But he's picked up again by Jesus in Mark and in Luke where he says, this will be your sign. When he's asked for a sign, he said, it'll be the sign of Jonah, that I'll be, 
uh, dead and buried for three days and rise again, and then you'll know that that's the sign. Jonah is also interesting because he appears both in the Quran, in Islam, and in Jewish. Um, he's used at Yom Kippur for the idea of sin and atonement. So of all the major religions, Jonah is one of the, the, the few, and there are others besides him, but one of a handful that transcends all of them. He's a prophet in Islam. He's mentioned in Jewish and celebrated on a feast. And in Christianity, it's the sign that Jesus says of, of his death and resurrection that he tells the Pharisees. In fact, he tells the Pharisees something else. He said those Ninevites that were saved would be the ones judging you in Matthew. We don't hear much about the Ninevites after this until Nahum chapter 3. And then we hear what an awful group of people they are. It's about 150 years later. The verse that Wendy read earlier is also kind of the conclusion of the Ninevites, where they're praying for relief from their horrible reign. And in those beautiful words about still trusting in God, even though all of these bad things have come about from that. So the salvation of the Ninevites was temporary in the scope of time. It was less than 150 years. They get overrun by the Babylonians. The Babylonians destroyed them, and today Nineveh's mostly just ruins. We have no other positive stories that we know about the Ninevites. So where does that leave us? What do we take from this? And what do we listen and learn, and what do we find this? And again, I have to, I've got to sit here, and I know it's bothered some of you that we've tilted the stage, but I have to ask myself kind of the same questions. When do I ask, and when does God tell me to do something, and I don't do it? I can think of a lot of examples. When do I sit in the comfort of the fern provided by the Almighty and shake my hand and say, I know better than you how things should be done. And I think quite a bit. And then I've got to think about the fern back there that God says he provided. And I also got to have to think about the worm that God says in Jonah 4 that he provided. And it's easier for me on the first because I can think about the blessings and the people and things and fortunate events in life where maybe it was just sprung up like a fern for one or two days or maybe it was longer, people that came into my life, and I can recognize those ferns. I have a bit more trouble, though, with the worms. I have tr trouble with winter hardships or toil put in. Was it just an object lesson for Jonah, or does it apply to us? And then finally, there was a quote that I saw this week that I would like to read, and it, it has troubled me a lot, and I'll read it to you, that religion, this is written by an outsider, by the way, somebody from another country, and he's talking about the church in the U.S. And he said, religion that is responsive to the pressures of the market will end up profoundly fractured with each denomination finding most hateful to God the sins that least tempt its members, while those sins that are the most popular become redefined and even sanctified. He goes on, in the end, a market-driven approach to religion gives rise to a market-driven approach to truth, and the development ultimately eviscerated conservative Christianity in the U.S. and left it in the possession of hypocrites and hucksters. And this author was talking about some of the scandals that are more famous, you know, the 
the financial scandals, the sex abuse scandals, all the cases where power in the church corrupted those, and it's talking about bigger, bigger issues, but I found those words convicting to me this week. You know, I found there's so much that I like and so many sins out there that I want to, like Jonah, sit here and say, that's not okay, while I sit and Jonah, and what did Jonah do when he was in the body of the whale? He cried out to God for salvation for himself. And I can find so often myself. I want and I expect God to forgive my wrongs, my sins. I expect him to forgive you. I expect him to forgive the people around, and yet I cannot for the life of me fathom that salvation to God could be applied to people that I don't agree with or don't align with. You know, ultimately, I come to Jonah, and I see chapter 2, verse 9, where Jonah says salvation is from God. And I'm not sure Jonah believed it when he said it. I've given you lots of reasons why I don't think he he meant it. Uh, But if we are going to take away the lessons, take away from Jonah... I think the lesson is salvation belongs to God. Let's stand and see.